Lucas on Life. Hello, welcome to Lucas on Life. I'm Jeff Lucas. It was over four decades ago now that I decided to follow Jesus. In fact, we used to sing a song about it. Maybe it's familiar to you. Follow, follow, I will follow Jesus. The question I've been considering this week is, am I still following? As we're going to see, God is a God who is traveling, journeying, going somewhere. The Christian message is not just invite Jesus into your heart, have him come to where you are. Instead, it is follow me and I'll make you a fisher of men. Go where I'm going, says Jesus. Following Jesus, are we still doing it? Are we still following? Because he's the journeying God. I wish I'd been there. It was a hot Sunday evening. The pews were packed and it was time for the closing benediction. The minister, splendidly sombre in black suit and stark white clerical collar, stepped up onto the platform and stood majestically in front of the open baptismal tank. Minutes earlier, a number of grinning new Christians had breathlessly shared their testimonies and then had stepped down into the chilly waters. Now it was time to draw the evening to a close. The Lord bless you all, said the pastor, smiling benevolently down at his flock. I'll see you next week. And with that, he stepped back straight into the tank. I wish I'd been there to see it. He was unhurt, I need to quickly say, and graciously joined in with the peals of delighted laughter as he beat a soggy retreat to the vestry. I love it when things go wrong in church. I wish I'd been there when the rather overweight and overbearing worship leader, whose worship leading style was to bark orders at the congregation, demanded that they lift their hands right now. And then, as he lifted his hands, his groaning belt buckle exploded and his trousers fell down to his ankles, revealing a rather voluminous pair of boxer shorts, apparently manufactured by Mr. Walt Disney. I'm told that members of the congregation were sticking Bibles in their mouths in vain attempts to contain their mirth. But my favourite things that go wrong in church story took place in the USA at a large nativity concert. Our American cousins are famous for their mega church productions, rented camels and donkeys, a full orchestra, and the ability to fly angels across the church building suspended by wires 60 feet up in the air. The velvet-clad choir sang, eyes shining, the musicians played, note perfect, and the camels helpfully controlled their bows. It was a beautiful moment, as at last the time came for Gabriel, Norman, the hapless deacon who'd been volunteered, it was time for him to appear. The crowds gasped as he rapidly swept high across the auditorium, and then glorious disaster struck. The electric motor driving Norman's harness burnt out and he stopped dead so suddenly that he began to swing wildly and then because of the momentum the wires attached to Angel Norman's wings got twisted and he began to spin round and round faster and faster. I wish I'd been there to see that angelic ceiling fan. But consider that vivid picture of a man spinning round and round and round and know that spinning round in circles is exactly the condition that describes many of us Christians. The spinning saints aren't overly rebellious, out of fellowship, or prone to shake an angry fist at heaven. They're nice, good people, with heads filled with sound doctrines and hearts that are, as they say, in the right place. 
It's just that spiritually, the spinners aren't going anywhere. They're not following. They're not traveling. Progress has halted. Growth has faltered. Their Christianity has become stale and static. It can happen to the best of us, this spinning. Trust me, I know. Consider a ramshackle band of Hebrew slaves who, around 3,500 years ago, cried out to God to deliver them from the barbed whips, narrowed eyes and gritted teeth of their Egyptian taskmasters. God danced once again into their history as rescuer and redeemer, and the great journey, the Exodus, began. And it was much more than a great escape. Those outcasts and fugitives became a chosen people called to travel to a promised land. And initially, it was an action-packed journey as they quite literally followed God. The prince of Egypt, Moses, walked away from the good life of Pharaoh's palace in order to lead them. Their route wound its way through the supernatural and the miraculous as the obedient Red Sea stood up, impossibly at Moses' command, only to crash fatally down again on the vast army that chased them. God himself was their GPS, their navigation system. As the Hebrews followed the pillars of fire and cloud, they discovered that Yahweh was uniquely the dynamic traveling king. What a contrast to the pagan religions of the day which held no long-term hope for the future and no plan of things. Paganism and the occult arts offered dark magic rituals designed to persuade the so-called gods to give you a good crop that year, manipulation for the sake of the immediate. But the Hebrews were called to follow the travelling, journeying God, the divine trekker who rode daily at the head of his people. The Ark of the Covenant would be kept in a tent as a living reminder of the God who was committed to tenting it with his people. Towards the end of the Judges period, the Ark was placed in a permanent structure, but the feeling remained that the proper housing for the throne of God was a tent. But the story of those early trekkers, those early travellers, didn't end happily. As they doubted, grumbled and rebelled, they got more and more off course. God still with them, but they would never inherit the promised land destiny that he'd prepared for them. The journey in God allowed them to spin out their days in the wilderness, marching still, but going nowhere. A 40-year unmagical mystery tour. Even Moses was to die with the promised land just a distant horizon. The excursion ended in the sand. So what of us three and a half millenniums later? Many of us have known an exodus as we have stepped away from our Egypt. We've walked away from the godless, hopeless lives that we lived. Some of us have heard the call of the journeying Jesus, who still says, come, follow me today. But others who have sat slumped by the roadside for too long, who have been spinning our wheels, will stir once more and take his hand again, perhaps a firmer grip this time. Perhaps the great adventurer will come and invite us to get rid of excess baggage that weighs us down or free our feet from the sin that so easily entangles, tripping us up when we should just get moving. So what's it to be? Onward, upward to the promised land or meandering around in the sand? Is it progress or spinning round in circles? The journeying God who invites us to follow him warmly calls us. We're thinking about following Jesus. And if we're going to do that, we've got to know that he really wants us, me, you, on his team. Our loft is a disaster area. Suitcases that will never see the light of day again battle for space with piles of fading photographs. 
There are a few horrendous wrought iron table lamps, the design work of tortured souls, lamps that should never ever have seen the light of day in the first place. Our loft looks like the aftermath of Armageddon. It was during my last excursion up into the rafters that I discovered my old school football boots. Running my fingers along the tired, cracked leather, still caked with mud from 50 years ago, I remembered one awful day in my inauspicious soccer career. The match itself had been a disaster for me. Ten minutes into the game, our sports teacher, referee, had brought the entire match to a halt to ask why I was playing in the position of centre-forward when I was supposed to be a defender. I blush easily, and that day I glowed like a traffic light as I walked slowly back to my right-back position. But the event that is really etched on my memory happened before the game itself, when the teams were being picked. Do you remember the routine from your soccer netballing days? Two captains, impossible intrepid athletes themselves, stand apart from a motley crew of potential teammates who were looking with pleading eyes, hearts crying, pick me, please. Obviously, the best players are snapped up quickly, leaving a depressing group of apparent misfits who become more desperate to be selected by the second. Just four of us were left, then three, then two, then me. One of the captains wrinkled his nose like he was viewing the last turkey in the shop and said, all right, we'll take Lucas then, blushing time again. I'm not getting precious about this moment in my personal history. Excruciating as it was then, I don't think the experience has marred my psychiatric health. But as I sat in the half-light of the loft and held the old boots again, I remembered for a moment the shame of being the player that no one wanted, reluctantly chosen because nobody else was available. And then I recalled some words of Jesus that should cheer up any of us with less than brilliant sporting achievements. He said... You did not choose me, but I chose you. You can find it in John 15 and verse 16. Ordinary, messed up people like loudmouth Peter and wandering Thomas and even traitor Judas were picked out of the crowd and given the invitation that changed a lifetime and eternity, not just 90 minutes. They were chosen to be his disciples, his apprentices. They were chosen to follow him, to be with him. And he's picked us for his team too. That's pretty remarkable. After all, he's the coach who sees every weakness we have. We may fool the crowds, but he sees our clumsy, pathetic attempts in sharp focus. We miss our goals, find it easy to foul, and he watches it all. He knows us, and he still likes us. Scratch that. He knows us, and he still loves us. And he has paid the highest transfer fee in history, his own life, his own blood shed, so that we could play on his side. The problem is knowing how to play on the Jesus team. What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? I've often thought that it was easier for the likes of the 12 because their selection was made by a physical Jesus and they literally had to put aside their nets or tax collecting and be with him to follow him. For us, it may seem a little more complicated. Some suggest that discipleship means that we have to sell everything and give all we own away. But how can that really work? How can we follow Jesus in a world where ethics and goodness and values are scorned and where spirituality is fashionable, but Christians seem to get the red card? Is discipleship a lofty term that can really only be used to describe the martyrs of yesteryear or the suffering church of today? We'd better get these questions sorted out because the Jesus who has picked us has commanded us to go and develop other apprentices for the team and invite them to follow Jesus as well. 
As we look at Jesus and discipleship in John's Gospel, we discover that the life of discipleship is not a dreamy ideal for desert monks and missionary pioneers, but it's a way of life that is accessible and available to all of us. We're called to follow. If we're called to make disciples, that means that others should be involved in making us into disciples and followers as well. He is all I need is a very old song that celebrates the truth that we don't need anyone in our lives except God himself. I know what it's trying to say and it has a nice lilting tune, but surely that suggestion is theologically bankrupt. We do need other human beings to help us to follow Jesus. That's why church is more than a singing club or a biblical lecture centre. It's to be a discipling community, the forge where people of character and significance are crafted. Personally, I think that discipleship ought to include volunteering to help clear up other people's lofts and all of the rubbish that has gathered there. So come on over. There's a free table lamp in it for you. We've been considering the question, are we still following Jesus? Perhaps we can rush to try and answer that question. We can assume that, well, of course, I've given my life to Christ, so it's all still happening. But in the epistle of James, it becomes very clear as James rebuked those who make plans to make money, move to a new location without truly consulting God and seeking his will. It's very clear that it's possible to give your life to Jesus and then gradually, slowly, incrementally and even unconsciously take your life back again. Today, wherever we find ourselves, regardless of how long we've been on the road, as it were, let's affirm once again, follow, follow. I will follow Jesus. See you next time. Lucas on Life. 